welcome back to Troubleshooting Agile. Hi there, Jeffrey. Hi, Squirrel. Hey, Squirrel, I, I have a pretty simple question for you. you Maybe a couple questions. Are you willing to, to answer these for me? Absolutely. Hit me. All right. First, um, I had a question about vehicles. Uh, and do you think uh, a hot air balloon is a vehicle? Ooh, now that's an interesting question. Yes, I do. Okay. Yeah, no, I do too. Um, and if I was in a, you ever been to a, 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 like a fair, a fun fair, and they might have like a hot air balloon that's tethered to the ground and mm -hmm. people can, uh, they'll sell rides, you know, they'll like let, let you go up in it and then they'll, you know, winch you back down and, and go back and forth. So yep. that, that if you're, if you're in that, then you're in a vehicle, right? Uh, yeah, I guess so. Okay. And, and so if I were to doing that in a park, then you would be in a vehicle in the park, right? Ah, I see where you're going. Yes. Okay. Now, if I was in the hot air balloon, but it wasn't tethered to the ground, but merely floating over the park, is it in the park? Ooh, fascinating. And I think this is the subject of much litigation, right? There's air rights and other kinds of things. So uh, lawyers make lots of money out of uh, questions like this. Yeah, absolutely. And and I can, it's one of those kind of like you know if you say if you say no, it's not in the park. Well, then this will weird. It was because it wasn't tethered to the ground, and yet somehow is it is it that ground connection anyway? So I think that the, yeah, the point what if I somebody comes that, and cuts the rope? Does it suddenly become yeah. no longer? Is it, <laughs> is it still no, no longer in the park? And exactly. There are probably um, thousands of pages of case law on this question that you could go look up in some dusty law library. Yeah. Although it's, so it seems like an easy, like it might be a simple question, but as you get into it, it's not. And and of course, now the reason that I'm asking these questions, you you know the answer to this. It's because you told me about this really kind of odd online game. Uh, link in the show notes called No Vehicles in the Park, and uh, we thought that would be an interesting uh, discussion today. And you know, what why did, why did we get into this? What's what's the connection between this and <laughs> troubleshooting Agile? Why what, why are problems that Agile teams encounter related to the question of whether a hot air balloon floating overhead is in a park? Well, so this goes back to the reason I grabbed this when I saw it and said, Jeffrey, we got to talk about this. It is because of a guy named Keith Braithwaite, uh, a very, very clever thinker on all things agile and software and, and other things. And uh, I remember seeing a talk by him donkeys years ago, just uh, ages and ages ago. And uh, he mentioned that there there were really good psychological reasons. There were really well understood sort of um, notions about uh, why it is that we have so much trouble building software that people want. Because you would think that it would be really simple. You'd go to some people and you'd say, hey, what do you want? And then you'd write down the answer and then you'd build that and then they'd buy it from you. And, and if it were that simple, sound, then sound a simple. lot more people, uh, yeah, a lot more people would have successful software companies. Nobody, nobody's software company would ever fail. The, the problem is, and Keith explained this very nicely, that nobody really understands what human beings mean when they use words. And, and an example of that, which came up in the game that, that I saw and sent to you, is the concept of a vehicle. And if I say vehicle to you, something comes to your mind, maybe a car, maybe a, a hot air balloon, maybe an airplane, something comes to your mind. But then you start to think about your example, right? The hot air balloon is going up and down on a tether and somebody cuts the rope and it goes over the park. Suddenly it becomes a much more fuzzy and, and difficult concept. 
And of course, in software, we're dealing with concepts all the time, right? We have object-oriented software in which there are classes called vehicle, and we have definitions <laughs> of the vehicle, and the vehicle has a speed, and the vehicle has a location, and stuff like that. Um, there's another fun one. I just thought of this as, as I was um, getting excited about it. Um, there's a wonderful article, which we should link to, and it's um, uh, false things, it's something like false things that software developers believe about names. And it goes through and lists <laughs> all these things that you think are pretty obvious about human beings' names, but they aren't actually true, like that everyone has a first name and last name. Well, Prince or Madonna. Okay, that's easy. But um, everybody has a unique name. Okay, well, there are people who have nicknames. Okay, fine. But uh, um, everybody has a legally recognized name. Everybody has um, a, a name that is um, uh, unique. Everybody, and, and there's a whole bunch of others that I can't even think of. Everybody has a name that can be written down, <laughs> that can be reduced <laughs> to words. Everybody has a name that is less than 1,000 characters, that kind of thing. And uh, uh, it's another example of this thing. I said, I say name to you, a human being's name. You think you know what that is, but then you start getting into all the, the complications of it and all the things that a, a piece of software forces you to think about because the computer is going to enforce uh, what seems like a reasonable limit. Nobody's name could possibly be more than 200 characters. But then you meet somebody who lives in a culture where names are um, uh, take 10 minutes to recite. And you think, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> Now, how is my software going to deal with that? Uh, badly, it turns out. Uh, and right. uh, the same thing happens with law and and the concept of uh, vehicles in the park. We'll come back to what this game is in just a second. Um, and also, what Keith was telling me about, uh, telling, uh, talking about in this uh, talk I saw, that the uh, the idea that we're trying to capture is actually not well defined. So uh, I'd encourage listeners to, to try this game. It, it's a very simple game. It's online. You just uh, answer a whole bunch of questions, and then you see, not actually a whole bunch, it's like 50, uh, 30 or something, and um, each one poses a question that's like Jeffrey's. Uh, there's a good one in there. I'll spoil it slightly. Uh, what if an, uh, a space station is orbiting above the Earth, and it happens to pass directly above the park? Is it a vehicle? Is it in the park? Is it in trouble? Do we care? How would we know? Right. So there's all kinds of interesting edge cases like that. What about a toy car? You know. So it, it poses all these to you and um, uh, makes you think, which is uh, one of the things that I really enjoyed about it. So uh, Jeffrey, did you uh, uh, play the game? Did you, did this? Uh, did these questions provoke you? Well, it, you know, I haven't played the game, um, but I, I I did. I was very much inspired by the by the concept, which is that it's um, kind of impossible to get a group of people to agree on on uh, with something that seems simple. And it tied really well. You know, you you mentioned that Keith Braithwaite had told you about the big book of concepts. Um, oh yeah, I was going to get in to the that. show note. Mm -hmm. I, I I just read the uh, the extract from MIT Press about it, and, and the, the the phrase that caught my mind it talks about there's things that are phenomenologically simple, um, but actually then difficult to define, um, and, and and so that that is what really made me feel about the the link to software and, and some experiences I've had in the past week. Um, but you know, why don't you tell us about the big book of concepts because I think that's going to be very related to what we get into. Oh, absolutely, and this is the thing the main thing that uh, Keith's talk really uh, kind of drilled into my brain because uh, I went and bought the big book of concepts. By the way, do not go buy the big book of concepts. You do not need to read it. I'm going to tell you everything you need to know about it in the next 60 seconds. <laughs> but I went and bought it just to save everyone else the trouble. 
Because what Keith said was, uh, there's this book that's all about what psychologists have done, and it summarizes all of the the work that they have done over many, many years to try to capture these ideas and model them and predict what people will do when they're uh, given a definition like a vehicle, when they're given a legal definition or a human definition, when they're given the word, how do they fit things into categories, what what do people do with this? And the book is really big. And it contains a lot of uh, dense psychological material, all the, the research and all the different, you know, it's almost like a meta-meta study of, uh, of this, uh, this idea, this, this difficulty that psychologists have had. But I'll tell you the punchline, which is none of them can figure anything out. Every uh, study has been completely useless and completely failed in coming up with anything that is better than kind of randomly guessing at, at what category someone might put something in. Uh, the, the classic one from the book is, uh, is a clock a piece of furniture? And if you ask this of a large group of people, you'll get like a 50-50-60-40 kind of split uh, of people who think different things. Somebody who's thinking of a grandfather clock thinks, well, yeah, of course it's furniture. Somebody who thinks of uh, an alarm clock or maybe even the clock on your phone doesn't think of it that way and says, no, it's not furniture. And these people have passionate debates about these topics that are not very productive, which sound an awful lot like software debates about uh, you know, where, where should, how should we define this vehicle? What, name, what limits should we have on the number of characters in a name? Should names have characters? These are the sorts of things that we debate. Nobody understands these things. <laughs> and 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 I, I can bring up a, a direct example I experienced in the past week, which was the desire. And, and I think and a point I make here is uh, we we actually I'll say this: when when we build software, we make decisions on these things, and, and that's the, that's I think the, the one of the key points is that what to the process of creating the software is to reify some abstract concept into functioning software. So the software embodies a certain set of decisions on what these abstract concepts are, but we've just said people can't agree. And there's a couple different implications of that. One is, and I think that was one you entered with, which is the, uh, the, the user who you interviewed and said, I want this thing, he, he described in terms of concepts, we went and built something where we created some, an artifact that, that embodies a certain set of concepts, but when those concepts don't match, <laughs> it, it doesn't give people what they want. The situation I was in was, in a sense, worse, where we were trying to bridge two different systems that had similar concepts, that used similar names, but meant different things. And these Ooh, are boy. things like user <laughs> and company. <laughs> and, 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 you know, and this is the, the, the gap between what we had in Salesforce, you know, our uh, CRM, our customer relationship management system, uses these terms in a sort of contractual sense. But then we have our actual operating software and our authentication system. When these systems, you know, we, we built that we built out our Salesforce implementation, we built out our software, but not at the same time and not the same group of people. And guess what? These terms don't mean the same thing when you want to try to bridge them. And, and that's just, you know, people within the same company trying to agree on a simple term like, you know, well, you know, what is a user? What is a company? 
And that might seem yeah, really is, simple. Is a user still a user when they're out of contract, but they're still using the product because we're trying to win them back? <laughs> that would be a, an example where Salesforce probably thinks they aren't a user because they aren't paying. But boy, the, uh, the customer service people are right on top of that user. They're trying to get that user to begin paying again. Right, exactly. And what if when what if you have a new user at the same company but they're not yet under contract? Are they a trial user or not? Because if you have a concept of trial software, that's different. And the same thing, if someone expires, is that a trial or not? What if the same company has multiple contracts? So maybe your your question is not actually about companies at all. Maybe it's about contracts. But even the question of what's a company when you have these large, you know, multinational uh, um you know, conglomerates, when you have Ernst & Young with 85,000 employees <laughs> in very different, you know, in, in multiple countries that operate very differently, are they the same company or not? Does it matter if we have a, a global contract or, or not? It is all, all these com uh, complexities that come into it that seemed really simple when someone said, hey, you know what? <laughs> when, when, when a company is in this state, we should do this to the users in the software. And it turns out there's a, there's a lot more concepts involved uh, than it seems. Well, I remember uh, going to a very early customer of mine when I was very, very new in building software for, for large organizations, and I was writing a, a piece of code that was very low level. It needed to deal with all kinds of these messy choices, and, and I was making one of those messy choices where, where something could be empty, and um, it didn't make any business sense for this thing to be, I could have been the address on a bill or something like that. Like, how would we even bill this person if we don't have an address? But I needed to know what to do if that happened, and it was physically possible in the code. And I remember going to a uh, representative of the customer, and I wanted to have this little interview, and I wanted to say, what should I do operationally? What should we do if the database doesn't have anything for the address? This this customer just doesn't have an address. I mean, these this is a, a company doing uh, water delivery. So, I mean, if you don't know the address, how could you even have them be a customer, right? <laughs> so the, the person I was talking to could not conceive of what I was describing. He just said, how could we have a customer without an address? They couldn't be getting water from us. It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> and I remember chasing him down the hall. He walked away from me and I said, but wait, I still need to know. What do I do? He said, I don't care and left. So the point, the point is that um, when you have the, this reification going on, when you have these choices that you're making about uh, a concept that your users understand and possibly quite differently from you, the only thing you can do is probe, sense, and respond. The only thing you can do is operate in, in the, uh, if we refer to Kinevin that we've talked about a lot, the, the uh, complex domain. You have to try something. And you have to put it in front of them. And you should expect that they will say, hey, wait, this clock is not furniture. Hey, wait a minute. This vehicle is not in the park. That's part of the process and something both you and they should expect. And um, probably not so useful to chase them down the, the, the aisle. But you, you do need to uh, get resolution on these questions. But the only way I know to do it is to experiment. Very, very smart people have spent a very long time trying to figure this out and have in an abstract way and have failed completely. So don't feel bad if you do. <laughs> I don't. There's a couple other things where this comes in because you're talking about it just in the terms of um, the the customer and the company that's going to build the software, as though the people in the software company are yeah, all share the same concept. <laughs> but of course they don't. And this is where some of the problem comes in in, in uh, the discussions about you know are the requirements done or not? You know did did scope change? Right. This is the classic question, you know, for the, the debate between product and um, 
in development is is uh you know why were we late and it's the developer saying well the the you know the product kept changing the scope and the and the and the product yeah, people they are wanted like, us no, to deal with trial users yeah i mean we never exactly. thought that we were you know we said users what do you mean <laughs> where did these trial users that's extra scope well i guess it'll take a few more months no no of course we meant all users of course we when we said users we meant all users so yeah including the, the trial the, users you knew that yeah. <laughs> back and forth we isn't that that's that's obvious exactly so this is actually why there are techniques uh around how you in a software project you know can and why you should try to create a, what's called a ubiquitous language and this is often the point where i would introduce people to the concept of domain driven design and the concept of a bounded context and the this is these are kind of jargon words but what they mean is we when we go and build software we need to agree on what the words mean so that we can, when when we're having a discussion you and i mean the same thing by it and you know what we can't just go look up it in a dictionary we have to define it together and then we need to write it down so we can refer back to it later and then we can use these words you know in our documentation in our software and know that at least we all agree with each other and that's kind of the point of creating the ubiquitous language we're going to use the same terms to mean the same thing everywhere but the one of the parts i like about it is this idea of a bounded context which is to say these words that we're defining they're not going to have universal meaning they're only going to have a meaning that's shared within the bounded domain that we're defining together and so later in the future we should know these words won't mean the same thing across systems if we want to go and suddenly have our systems talk to each other using similar terms we're going to have to define a new bounded context and come up potentially with a new ubiquitous language and so that whole concept that's built into this is very um, is very much built on the principle that language is not universal the concepts that we think of you know phenomenologically that we can use and have what we feel is a very definite um, grasp of are in fact you know squidgy things that are hard to pin down and impossible to pin down definitively among a group if with without putting the work in to come up with like yes this is going to be our shared meaning and that is an essential part in in my experience of building software systems if you want them to be successful is to go through this process and you can either do it deliberately or you're going to do it accidentally and expensively through a lot of rework and a lot of back and forth on requirements and I, I in my experience that part takes a lot longer so that's a choice you can you can do this unconsciously evolve it over time together or you can kind of deliberately set out to define these things and that's something that i have found to be much more effective and the important thing that keith braithwaite and the big book of concepts teaches us is that that ubiquitous language is not going to be stable and and um, consistent and always the same and uh, things will change in the in the universe. Things will change in culture. Things will change in you know, your understanding of what users think. And they'll come along and say something like, "Hey, man, did you realize that we sometimes have trial users who never convert, and and they actually never wind up paying us?" <laughs> yeah, that's got to be a different kind of user. And they realize that halfway through the process. So they may have agreed right. with you something, but that's going to evolve. Or they might agree, uh, hey, we're, we're going to make sure we uh, record a gender for each person, male or female, right? Well, <laughs> guess what? Now we have a whole bunch yeah. of new things because the culture changed and we have different ways of defining people and, and, and people are uh, reject those, um, those criteria. So if you have a database from 40 years ago, 
uh, it was it might have been ubiquitous then, but it, the language is no longer ubiquitous, and uh, that's when you're going to have to evolve it. So the most important thing listeners should take away from this, I think, is uh, don't feel bad when you have these kinds of problems. Everybody does for a good reason, and plan to mitigate it. Plan to uh, uh, define the language as best you can, and then evolve it as you go. What do you think, Jeffrey? Absolutely. Excellent. Okay. Well, uh, if listeners uh, have uh, been confused by our language and want to ask us about it, or if you have a different way of approaching requirements, my my least favorite word, I, I hate that uh, uh, word and I outlaw it from all my clients, but if you have a different way of defining them, you, you avoid scope uh, challenges and, and debates about uh, changes in scope in a different way, we'd like to hear about people who are confused, disagree with us, or have interesting stories. Uh, that leads to the most interesting conversations for us and best future podcast episodes. So to get in touch with us, of course, you head on over to agileconversations.com, which is where you'll find not only our book and lots of material that you can get for free, uh, articles we've written, recordings, videos, all kinds of good stuff like that, but also various ways to get in touch with us. I'm told I'm on TikTok. I don't know, but um, uh, <laughs> there, there are various places where you can find us and the relevant ones are there. Guess what? Email is probably going to work best, but uh, uh, you can use lots of different ways to get in touch with us and we enjoy all of them, and uh, especially hearing from you, our listeners. And if you'd like to, you can uh, come back and listen to us again, of course. Uh, that's the other way to keep in touch with us. That'll be next Wednesday when we'll have another edition of Troubleshooting Agile. Thanks, Jeffrey. Thanks, Carl. <laughs>